So tonight we're going to be talking about being poor in spirit. And Phil did such a great job of framing this study of such an important part of Jesus's most famous sermon. And so this, this little chunk, the Beatitudes, uh, is just so important to what the kingdom of God is, what the kingdom of heaven is, how it plays out in a, an active and real way. And so tonight we're going to be continuing in Matthew 5, 3. So just a quick refresher, this, you know, obviously what Phil talked a lot about last week, but uh, Morris states in his Pillar New Testament commentary, it is significant that the sermon begins with Beatitudes rather than imperatives. Jesus will go on to make great demands on his followers, but these demands are to be understood in the context of grace. And so this, these Beatitudes, it's not like a list of commands, but instead a list of truth promises that we get to respond to with gratitude and hope. Um, you know, in fact, the actual first command happens right at the tail end of 512 there. And it's an extension of our blessed status existing even throughout persecution. And the command that Jesus gives us at the end of the Beatitudes is to be glad and rejoice. Again, kind of harping back to this idea that we ought to receive these truth promises with gratitude and hope and joy. So start by reading Matthew 5, 3. And we have all heard this scripture many, many times. Um, and so I'm going to read it in Greek, and then we'll parse through it kind of phrase by phrase uh, to, to hopefully try to see it again in fresh light. So Matthew 5, 3. Makarioi hoi petokoi to numati. Hati auton estin he basilea ton urano. And so you see there the makorioi, makorioi, that's like the blessed, hoi potokoi to mati, the poor in spirit, or blessed are the poor in spirit. Hati, outtone estin, for theirs is, so for theirs is, and then this last phrase, ha basilea ton uranu, the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, which is just, there's so much going on in this phrase that Jesus kind of starts laying out these beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So let's start off with the beginning here. Blessed, makorioi. Now, you know, there's, there's common misconceptions about this word because it's sometimes translated as happy, or fortunate, um, and certainly kind of like our Western perspective of the word blessed is slightly corrupted with this connotation of perhaps rich, but honestly, happiness, happy, does not begin to fully cover this, this idea of Makaro. It is much more akin to the undercurrent of great joy we can experience despite all trials, and all temptations, according to James 1. It is that, that fully lived experience of participating in God's will and receiving the comfort, hope, and joy that it comes with. And, and two, just the same idea of, of rich. Like, if we just think of this word blessed as rich from a worldly perspective of, of material things, we have totally lost sight of what God is doing in this world. 
In fact, the Beatitudes are, are absolutely just this basic flipping of all of the power structures in the world. That's what Jesus is doing with these things. He's saying, nope, it is not what you expect it is. What you see as valuable, what you see as important, what you see as what is meaningful to a rich life is wrong. It's actually those that are poor in spirit that are blessed. And so, you know, one other important note here, although this sermon would have been heard by many that were in material need, that were actually physically poor, and even though this reverse promise of being blessed is not about being rich, it's important to note that uh, the actual lack of resources or lack of, of, of spirit is not a blessing in itself. Uh, so Morris, again, in his commentary states, any interpretation of his teaching that makes these things in themselves a blessing simply fails to take notice of reality. Jesus is pronouncing a blessing on those empty of any spiritual resource, poor as they often were in material things as well. And so it, it could be possible to read the scripture and kind of think that, oh, it's the people that are poor in spirit, like it's the fact that they don't have a spirit that somehow makes them blessed, but that's not it. That sets them up in the appropriate heart posture to receive this blessing that Jesus is talking about. And so again, just to close, close the door on this idea of blessed being rich, Friends, this world is not your home, so don't make yourselves cozy in it. Don't indulge your ego at the expense of your soul. Live an exemplary life among the natives so that your actions will refute their prejudices. Then they'll be won over to God's side and be there to join in the celebration when he arrives. That's 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12 in the message version. And I think it does such a great job of reminding us this idea of physical, material comfort is laughable in the face of what God is actually promising. And what we want to do is teach people that this is not what they're chasing. And instead, we want to chase God's will that, that way those people can join in on the celebration of what these Beatitudes are promising into the future and in the current, current time. So let's now turn our attention to the poor in spirit. Hoi petokoi to limati. So if this wasn't written to the material poor and there are these conceptions of being blessed, like what does it actually mean to be poor in spirit? The poor in spirit are those desperately and holistically dependent on God. Those who recognize that they simply are not self-capable of filling what their spirit is lacking. So seeing that we lack the spirit and we are not going to fill that hole ourselves and understanding that completely, that we do not have the resources to fill that up. And that humility, God recognizes and exalts. It is not some like side or, or some beneficial characteristic. It is actually the very essence of the, of the love our Lord and Savior had on us when he who was not poor in spirit made himself nothing even to the point of death in utter dependence on God to show us this path of humility and submission to the God of all creation. Like he laid it out perfectly. He wasn't poor in spirit, but he gave up the spirit of God. And he like on the cross, God forsake him. 
because of how committed he was to this idea of humility and submission to God. So those who are poor in spirit do not strive and grasp for what we want. We instead allow God to give us what we need. And, and this is us operating at our very best. This is us operating as God designed us to be. And, and honestly, what's wild about this is that in, in any given moment, in any decision, this choice to like reject our own yearnings and desires and instead to allow God to shape our existence, it's scary. It is hard to take new steps of faith. At every stage of life, it is hard to take that next step of faith. And honestly, from a worldly perspective, as we age, we often have much more to lose to give up everything. Yet that dependence also produces in us a peace that surpasses all understanding in the long run. So those individual scary choices to let God's will be done and not our own over time gives us great peace and comfort in our lives. And what's really cool is that being poor in spirit goes beyond just this type of material dependence on God, trusting him with our resources, our time, our energy, and our money. Being poor in spirit also allows us to trust him with our emotions, to mourn, to be tired, to sometimes be exhausted, and in some moments hopeless, to have this point where like, we just feel like, I can't do it. Because in those moments, being poor in spirit allows us to recognize that those feelings do, do not mean that God has somehow forsaken us. Instead, those are the very moments when we are given the greatest chance to be fully dependent on God. And through that desperation, he is right there with us. It's in those moments that we, we much more clearly understand our relationship to God. You know, this, um, this past year has, has been some of the harder situations I've faced from a ministry perspective. Um, and at times I was sick in my, in my stomach and my soul out of, out of care and hurt for and, and from others. And God carried me through it. And this future hope of the kingdom, this, this present immediate promise of the kingdom of heaven got me through it. And my brothers and sisters, my devout family and friends, their love, their showing me Christ's love carried me through that time period. And that dependence on God, when I simply couldn't deal with stuff myself, that paints the picture of what it means to be poor in spirit in the scripture. So now let's turn our attention to kingdom of heaven. And, you know, at this point in the gospel of Matthew, Jesus hasn't yet elaborated on the meaning of the kingdom of heaven. Um, in Matthew 3, 2, and then Matthew 4, 7, 1 John the Baptist, and then Jesus respectively, they express that the kingdom's entry is here, like the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Um, and they also tell of the people's necessary response, which we know to be repentance. Um, and then later on in the gospel, after this sermon, Jesus is going to more fully flesh out what the kingdom of heaven means um, through a number of parables. But this declaration here, that the kingdom of heaven belongs to those who are poor in spirit, 
is an important moment of clarity of what the kingdom even looks like and what its work on earth will be. So one other thing that I find super helpful to do here is to also look back at the promises in the Old Testament to kind of see what sort of clues God has left for his people about what was to come and what Jesus is ringing the bell on with these words. So let's turn over to Isaiah 25. I'm going to read 6 through 9. Now, the context in this specific part of, of Isaiah's prophecy is that God's kingdom is essentially coming and crashing down on the very best that the world can surmount. Uh, and so it's describing this holy mountain of God that utterly embarrasses the very best of the world. So starting in verse six, on this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheep that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. In that day, they will say, surely this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. So let's, let's compare that scripture against what we have received through the kingdom of heaven. So fellowship, right? On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich foods for all, all peoples. This is the unity that is created in God. This idea that there is no cultural bound, no language difference, uh, no national difference that can separate us when we are instead citizens of the kingdom of heaven. A banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. And honestly, as disciples, we take care of one another's needs. There will always be poor among us. We cannot feed every person on this earth, but we can make sure that the disciples do not go hungry. And I know that any of you, if someone needed a place to stay in the fellowship, would make the space to make it. Then there's this promise of everlasting life. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheep that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And it points to this idea of, of joy. Right, despite our mourning, we can both grieve and still have that underlying current of joy hanging on to the comfort and promises of our hope in Christ. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. And finally, shame removed with the forgiveness of sin. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. And so this is what we have received right now and in the age to come. This, this promise as laid out is fulfilled in Jesus's sermon here and pointing to the future of what he's building. And so right there, the end of that scripture, surely this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. So, so think about this verse in the context of Jesus bringing about the kingdom of heaven and us responding to that with gratitude, hope, and dependence on God. 
that idea of being poor in spirit and depending on God, right? We trusted in him. And that idea that we look at this idea of the coming of kingdom, the coming of the kingdom of heaven and rejoicing in it and, and having gratitude for it and having joy from it. God has always been working through his prophets and through the law to lay out a picture of what he is doing in this world. It was right there in the scriptures. Jesus just put it all together and fulfilled those promises. So there's one last piece of the scripture here, auton estin, uh, which is technically theirs is, right? So it says theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Um, and note the present tense, right? A lot of these other Beatitudes are some promises for the future. This one is very much in the present and in the age to come. And this is so incredible. We get to be recipients of this and the incredible promises to follow. But also, Jesus gives us full invitation to be participants in his kingdom's work, right? We are recipients and participants. It is not just a blessing bestowed on us. It is also an invitation of entry into citizenship in this kingdom of heaven. And if we read just a little bit earlier in that verse in Isaiah that I pulled out, it describes what God is doing and what we get to be, what we get to participate in now. So Isaiah 25, reading from 4, uh, 5. You have been a refuge for the poor, a refuge for the needy in their distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm driving against a wall and like the heat of the desert. You silence the uproar of foreigners as heat is reduced by the shadow of a cloud. So the song of the ruthless is stilled. Um, and an important note there, foreigners, the, the very specifically in that prophecy and promise was Israel's enemies surrounding them. It doesn't somehow negate our necessity of loving the foreigner and inviting them into the, the lonely, into the family that we have. And so this is it. This is the promise of the kingdom of heaven in the future and now. Matthew 5, 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So, it is so important for us to figure out, okay, well, how do, I, how do I take this and actually meaningfully understand it, right? I understand, okay, this is some sort of, of promised truth that I want to take and grasp and, and have in my life, but it also is not an imperative. There's no command in the scripture. There's no like, okay, so now go do this. So what type of reflection do we need to have on this scripture to fully understand and grasp its meaning on our lives? And so this next question, I'd like you to, to hopefully take at some point in the coming week, uh, one of your quiet times, and really reflect on it in a, in a meaningful way. Because the kingdom of heaven has been given to us, it is promised to us, but yet there are things that can prevent me from being poor in spirit. And a really good kind of important hint here is that often it is the things that give us a sense of security 
that have the greatest risk of preventing us from being poor in spirit. Because the more we hang on to and lean on those items as a crutch of our security, the more likely it is that if that were to be kicked out from under us, we would question our faith in God. Maybe it's your 401k. Maybe it's your job title. Maybe it is your frustration or hope in your child's salvation. Maybe it is leaning on the foundational faith of your spouse. There is a myriad of things that can become this this thing that we just trust in and kind of feel like, okay, you know what? I'm actually pretty well protected. I have coverage from the storm. And once we lean on those things, we create in ourselves a, a heart posture, if you will, that no longer is able to be poor in spirit because we no longer actually are poor in spirit. We instead have lost that utter and complete, perfect dependence on God and traded it in for dependence on worldly things that are not eternal. Temporary comforts that will not last into eternity. So please take some time this week, reflect on this. What is preventing me from being poor in spirit? It is worth it to examine these things as we aim to ever live out Jesus's promises for us. Thank you all so much for your attention. And I are so thrilled again to be in the region.